Welcome to episode 140 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today we get to speak to retired agent Timothy Tracy, who served in the FBI for 32 years, two as a budget analyst at FBI headquarters and 30 as a special agent. His first assignment was in the Cincinnati Division. Later, he was assigned to the House Appropriations Committee out of the Washington Field Office and to the Attorney General's Security Detail. And finally, to Louisville, Kentucky, where he spent the last 17 years of his career in the Covington, Kentucky Resident Agency. In this episode, Tim Tracy reviews his Kentucky mortgage fraud case, where the main subjects, son Bill and father Tony Erpenbeck, received multi-year sentences for obstruction of justice, and the father, Tony, was sentenced to additional years of incarceration for threatening to kill the judge, the prosecutor, and to kidnap Tim Tracy's young children. The investigation One of the last cases Tim Tracy worked prior to his retirement from the FBI was featured on the CNBC show American Greed. Upon his retirement, Tim Tracy accepted a position as a contract forfeiture investigator in the Cincinnati division. Currently, he is involved in several volunteer activities and performs investigative services on a limited basis. This is a fascinating case review because it's not just about mortgage fraud. Trying to record this intro is hilarious because it is actually Halloween evening and the doorbell keeps ringing and my dogs keep barking. Why did I wait so late to record this? Oh, by the way, happy Halloween. Now, what was I saying? That's right. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode because it's not just about mortgage fraud, but about two individuals who believed that they should not have to suffer the consequences of their crimes, and they ended up making things much, much worse for themselves. I'll put a link in the show notes to the American Greed site where you'll find some web extras about the case. As you have probably heard me mention, many times. I'm also an American Greed alumni, and having my charity Ponzi scheme case featured on the show was definitely a highlight for someone who worked economic fraud most of their career. You can check out my episode 122 if you're interested in learning more about my case. But before we get to Tim Tracy's episode, just a few things that I want to let you know. My November Reader Team Digest will be out on Friday, November the 2nd. And in this issue, I announced the title of my next book and the winner who suggested that title. I'll also provide details about my next FBI swag giveaway because it is that time of the year. I have two FBI Christmas ornaments and more. You can't get this anywhere else. FBI items to give away. So if you're not already a member of my reader team, then you want to go to my website, jerrywilliams.com and sign up there. You can also sign up on my Facebook page, Jerry Williams Author. And if you're listening to this on a podcast app 
and your app supports links. I'll have a link to the reader team sign up form in this episode's podcast app description. Sign up anytime during the month of November to be eligible to win that FBI holiday giveaway. And don't forget, you'll get access to the FBI reading resource, books about the FBI written by some of the very agents who have been on this podcast. I have about 43 crime novels, true crime, and memoirs listed on the FBI reading resource. I hope you'll become a member of the team. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Tim Tracy. Hi, Tim. How are you? It's great, Jerry. How about yourself? I am doing great. Both of us had the opportunity during our careers to work economic crime, and I'm always fascinated by fraud because, you know, it's just amazing what people will do to take other people's money. The case that you're going to talk to us about today is one of those situations where somebody was so greedy and the case was so interesting that it actually became an episode on the CNBC show, American Greed. That's correct. It's regarding a mortgage fraud. It's how it started. A construction company and a bank. The construction company was called the Urban Deck Company. It was founded in 1993 by the father of uh, three sons and a daughter. His name was Tony Erpenbeck. His son, Bill, was the president. The other sons, Gary and Jeff, were in lesser roles in the company. But the daughter, her name was Lori, and she ended up being sort of a major player in this whole event, which we'll get into a little later. The bank itself was the People's Bank of Northern Kentucky, and it was started by John Finnan, who formerly was of Star Bank, a larger bank in Cincinnati. Uh, at that time in 92 uh, was the beginning of the small regional banks that were trying to essentially deal with the, the small to medium-sized businesses. Before you start to review this case, I know that you were assigned to, to what division? I'm assigned to the Louisville Division, the, the Covington Resident Agency. And I know a lot of the case actually occurred in Cincinnati, Ohio. So could you explain to us you know, how that works with the FBI and, and this particular case? Jerry, it's, uh, it's something we deal with called venue. A number of the construction lenders were located in Ohio, but out of the 20 developments that Urban Beck Company had, I would say maybe 12 of them were in northern Kentucky. The remainder were over in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. The bank that was the primary bank for Bill Erpenbeck was located in Crestview Hills, Kentucky. So therefore, with the general case in prosecuting Bill Erpenbeck and his employees, it pretty much occurred in Ohio. And it really, it started because Bill's attorney contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office in Cincinnati and initiated proffer agreement in which Bill would come in and make a statement in order to mitigate uh, his circumstances. So therefore, with uh, that office being involved there, it followed logically that everything related to the Urban Beck Company would be prosecuted in the Cincinnati, Ohio area, Southern District of Ohio. Bank being located in Kentucky, all of their actions being pretty much uh, in Kentucky, they were to be prosecuted in the Eastern District of Kentucky, which is Covington, Kentucky. You'll often find that venue can rest in a few different districts, and it's usually between 
the various U.S. attorney's office, they decide who's going to prosecute what. And when we talk about these two areas at Kentucky and, and Ohio, how far of a distance? Is this something that you can just quickly drive back and forth? Yes. The Ohio River separates downtown Cincinnati and Covington, Kentucky. Cincinnati Airport is actually located in northern Kentucky. Essentially one metropolitan community, but uh, obviously different jurisdictions for state violations and uh, federal violations. All right. Well, I, I can certainly understand that living in South Jersey and having worked in the Philadelphia area for most of my career. So I get it. <laughs> so the other question that I have to ask you before we start on the review is that you did have a co-case agent. Yes. Kevin Gormley, he was in the Cincinnati division. We, we all worked together. We had Cincinnati agents, Northern Kentucky agents, and two different U.S. attorney's office uh, working on this matter. Kevin is still on board. Others that were very instrumental in this were the FDIC, Jim Ware, who's retired, and uh, the Kentucky Department of Financial Institutions. Uh, they were invaluable in, in helping us produce evidence to sort out this mess at the bank and figure out what actually occurred. The forensic accounting, you essentially, you're working backwards trying to figure it out and trying to match it up with statements from people. Back to the Erpenbeck Company, uh, in their founding in 1993, they were actually an offshoot of a larger Erpenbeck firm that was founded by Tony's father, Anthony. Anthony and his wife, Marcella, were very well-respected citizens in northern Kentucky. Uh, in fact, there's a school named for the two of them. Problem was, and this is, was rumored, and I think it was pretty much fact, is that uh, Tony, Bill, and his brothers were sort of booted from the company because they were found to be skimming some proceeds from uh, some of their operations. The Erpenbeck Company did become fairly large here in Northern Kentucky in the 90s, and it became the fourth largest builder. I think in 2000, they had about 20 developments, uh, 436 units uh, constructed, and about $84 million in sales. Most of the things we'll be speaking about today, as far as dollar amounts, Charges were in the neighborhood of anywhere 30 to $35 million, but the magnitude of that fraud was much, much greater. I mean, when it was all said and done, there were contractors, subcontractors out of business, suppliers took huge losses, homeowners who weren't part of this scheme lost big equity positions in their homes because of foreclosures. Homeowners associations were bankrupted. So what? how did this whole thing get started? Well, we found out about it in March of 2002 when Bill Erpenbeck and his attorney, Glenn Whitaker, visited the U.S. Attorney's Office in Cincinnati, Ohio. Why Cincinnati? Well, there were some banks that were lenders to them, construction lenders to the Erpenbeck firm that were located in Cincinnati. Others were in northern Kentucky. Glenn Whitaker was able to secure a proffer agreement uh, for Bill's initial statement with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Cincinnati. A proffer, as you know, is essentially coming in and making some incriminating statements with some hope down the road that you will mitigate the sentence that's going to be coming your way. After this interview, part of the investigative techniques that were utilized was that he was given a recorder to verify his allegations against People's Bank he more or less stated that they facilitated his fraud, that there was some truth to that. But Bill had a, sort of a big mouth, and, and by the latter part of March, the whole firm collapsed, let's put it that way, and 
everything just really hit the fan, so to speak. But he tells everybody he's working for the FBI. This is starting off really strange because he comes in and starts telling on himself and trying to pull in other people. Why did he do that? Was He did that because, because of the scheme that they had perpetrated, which was essentially not paying off construction loans as they were closing on the sales of the property. This whole thing was about to collapse with at least five other banks. They've been hounding him for the previous several, like probably previous months that he was late on payments and things like that. And the whole thing started to roll the wrong way. They were, let's say a construction lender, a bank would say, hey, we have so much out here that we've loaned the Erpenbeck company. We know they've sold some properties in this development, but we haven't received any of our principal or interest back. So this thing was gelling and it was gelling at all these different banks. So the whole thing was about to collapse at the end of March. And so he, they were trying to you know, minimize their uh, exposure here. And they came into the U.S. Attorney's Office in order to you know, tell their story. Yeah. All right. So they knew it was going to all blow up anyway. It was going to end up at the United States Attorney's Office anyway. And so right. they thought, you know what, let's just go in and Basically, I know a proffer is not necessarily a confession, but <laughs> confess. Yes. And um, he you know, laid it out uh, what had occurred. And more or less, as a result of his statement, the, the company collapsing, it, it just caused an uproar in the community. But the, the bankers and other employees of the Urban Beck company became targets. What was their scheme? Well, their scheme was they would go to a closing and they'd have their closing coordinator receive a check. Usually there's a, a couple of checks cut at closings, as you folks you know, might know, but what it is, the big checks are usually the check to the construction lender and then the check to the builder. Well, part of their scheme was to ask friendly title companies to give them both checks and let them leave with the closing with both checks because they wanted to save a few days of interest with their construction lenders. So they said, please give us that check. We'll make that deposit immediately and it will save us some money. So they went along with it. The crazy thing about it is that they would take both checks and they deposited into their bank at People's Bank. And um, how did that happen? We'll get into that in a minute. But as you can see, as the result of this type of activity is that folks that would buy a, a home from them would have a loan that they have to pay their, their lender, and then also, which causes a lien on the property, but there's also another lien on the property from the construction of that property. And that was because the construction loan that the Urpenbecks had on a particular piece of property was not being paid, which... You know, as I said, it, it affected approximately 220 homeowners. And then another 40 people were essentially elderly clients that were downsizing from their homes and they were cash buyers. So they went in there and, and sold their home and bought a condominium from the Urban Beck Company. But the underlying construction loan was never paid off. And it was just, uh, as I said, friendly title companies, procedures not being followed. And it resulted in these checks being misdeposited. And could you repeat again what should occurred? What should occur is that the title company 
should take the check that's just go to the construction lender and send it to them or transmit it to them in some other fashion, maybe by wire or what have you. And then that money is deposited. And then the title company should ensure that there is no lien on that property and that the construction loan lien has been cleared off of that property. That didn't occur. Um, it was very sloppy procedures. They, and then they allowed the Urban Beck Company closing coordinator, Michelle Marksbury, they allowed her to take that check that was made payable, let's say, to Star Bank for $45,000, let them take that check and walk out of the office with it. And then what they did was essentially make batch deposits at People's Bank with not only the check that was made payable to the Urban Beck Company, but also made payable to the construction lender. Let's say again, as I say, Star Bank. And how is that possible? Well, People's Bank, as we as I stated, started at about the same time as the Urban Beck Company. Uh, John Finnan, President and CEO, Mark Many was the Executive VP Lending Officer for the Urban Beck Company and, and other big, bigger firms. But Bill had 25 accounts, uh, all the various developments and construction entities that they maintained at People's Bank. He's also on the board of directors there. So these deposits came in in batch deposits, and they went to the same teller. And all this, the woman that was the, who handled these transactions, which she did, every one of them, it was amazing, but what they would do, she always worked the drive-in window and they utilized the drive-in window with the big bag. She just looked at the, the deposit ticket and added up the amount of the checks, never looked at the payee, and they were deposited. I thought this was absolutely unbelievable. We went in there, the FBI that is, we shut that bank down one day and we interviewed every employee at the same time trying to determine how this could occur. And there was no direction from above that to have this happen. There was, there was absolutely, it was, uh, you know, I have to say it, it, it was uh, just very poor management. She didn't do her job, but the proof department did not do their job in reconciling these deposits. You know, you know once a teller closes up every day, everything's reconciled downstairs, so to speak. And uh, that wasn't being done. It was just a very, very poorly run operation that allowed this thing to grow exponentially, as you can see over years, because what was charged up here was, it was essentially about $34 million. And in addition to these monies being deposited into the various Erpenbeck company accounts, which you think would keep them you know, in somewhat good financial condition, they were still running a deficit in various accounts. So colluding with Erpenbeck, Mark Many and John Finnan um, essentially concealed over a million dollars in account overdrafts and essentially turned those overdrafts into loans. You were saying that, you know, this was poor bookkeeping, that they were allowed to get away with putting these checks from third parties and depositing them into their account. Did the bank, you're, you're telling me that the bank presidents didn't know that this was occurring? They denied that it, they knew it was occurring, but uh, Jerry, uh, John, and, and Mark, uh, both you know, men that I had met before this whole thing happened, honorable people, but it was just, uh, this, they were too big of a client to you know, essentially 
let them fail. I think in hindsight, they probably wish they would have just sent them out of the bank, but they would have these, in order to cover up these issues, they not only that they were aware of the deposit scandal, but the overdraft loans were all made in order to, essentially they were made, the timing of them were made so the board of directors did not review them. So if they had a meeting on a particular day, they did it the next day and then it didn't come up in the next meeting. And that's, that's manipulation, as you could well imagine. The other ties with the People's Bank uh, and the Erpenbeck Company is that Mark Many and, and John Finnan, I keep mentioning Mark first, I, I really shouldn't, John was the president and CEO, but they set up a partnership with the Erpenbeck Companies in which it was, a, it was an LLC called Jams. It was the first initial of John and Mark's name as well as their wives. Um, in which they bought Erpenbeck model homes at a discount and leased the houses back to Erpenbeck. They were running a positive cash flow on these homes. They bought them, but let's say this was the other a fraud that they essentially committed with uh, lenders that they dealt with. They would uh, buy a $250,000 model home listed on the, the, on the HUD form as being $300,000. And then essentially not have to put anything down. The profit right off the bat was fifty thousand dollars, and they would split that with Erpenbeck, and many and and Finning pocketed the balance. And then of course they ran a positive cash flow because the Erpenbeck company was paying rent on all these properties uh, over a period of time. As I said, this was before the thing collapsed. I think they were holding the bag on about 20 of these homes when everything went down the tubes. Uh, they had sold maybe five or six of them prior to the whole thing going down. So that was a very profitable venture and certainly in violation of every banking standard set up by FDIC or the state of Kentucky. It's not an arm's length transaction by any stretch. People's Bank also uh, ensnared other banks into this fraud because they are a small lender and there's a number of small banks in the state of Kentucky. Down in the far reaches of the state, you have banks that are you know, taking in deposits, but they have nowhere to lend their money. So they were, you know, would be called participating banks. They would buy pieces of every loan that were assembled by uh, People's People's Bank to the Erpenbeck company that, you know, People's Bank had already hit their limit of what they could lend the Erpenbeck company. So, but they set these the loan syndicates up and then sold pieces of it and then serviced the loan for these folks. So when um, this whole thing went down, there was about 20 small banks in, in Kentucky and Indiana were, that were essentially teetering when the whole thing was, was done. So that's sort of how the fraud got started. That was the major fraud, as I would call it. Things started moving along. Bill moved out of the area. You know, the bank was was teetering. John Finnan and Mark Many were dismissed. Uh, another banker uh, came in, a retired banker, to try to save save the bank. Erpenbeck, Bill Erpenbeck, moves to Florida. Where did all the money go? Because you had explained to us at the beginning that this was one of the fourth largest, you know, companies, building companies. You're telling me a lot about, you know, the money that he took in, you know, the, the he wasn't paying the construction loans off. So where did the money go? Did he live 
you know, a lavish lifestyle? Yes, Bill lived a very lavish lifestyle. He uh, had very lavish parties at his home, a home that was probably a million and a half at that time, which is very, very expensive for this area. Flashy cars, golf tournaments, you name it. He was also very generous, I think, to his alma mater, Northern Kentucky University and Covington Catholic High School. But there wasn't a lot of substance to his wealth because when you dug in, there really wasn't much there. It was a lot of money going out and not much coming in. It's just a poorly run business. We're trying to sort this thing out. We're being the FDIC, the FBI, the Kentucky Department of uh, Financial Institutions. A big joint effort trying to figure out what happened here, getting our arms around it. You know, the scheme went on from 1999 to 2002. Ten construction lenders, 32 banks that were financing the various purchases by the homeowners. As I said, 260 victim homeowners. Very big impact on our community. Bill, finally, he pleads guilty to one count of bank fraud and conspiracy in early 2003. Michelle Marksberry, who I stated was the closing coordinator, she pled guilty to one count of bank fraud as well. She intended about 200 of these closings and helped deposit the checks payable to the construction lenders and into the Erpenbeck accounts. Lori Erpenbeck, who is in the background of this whole thing, but she, as a result of a death of another employee who, who was, uh, he was very nervous that he was probably going to jail, but he had a massive heart attack and passed away. So Lori Erpenbeck becomes the controller of the Erpenbeck company during this, these last few years of this scheme. Her background, a very athletic woman, uh, played softball at the University of Kentucky. Her degree was in was in physical education. She had no financial background, but she was in charge of this. But she did do something when she took over. She sort of kept the ledger of the property sold by Erpenbeck, whose construction loans were being diverted. And that's essentially what we call this whole thing. They were being diverted to run the business. And so Lori pled guilty with a very heavy heart. We dealt with Lori because she was a very, very abused individual by her father, not sexual abuse, but just abusive and abused by her brother, Bill especially, just very mean to her. And they, they just, she quit a few times and then would come back. And, and she left just prior to this whole thing breaking. She said she had had it. What was the abuse based on? It was just, they just shamed her into, this is your fault. You know, you just have to go along with this. And she just, she just smelled the rat. You know, she was didn't have a piece of the company. Everybody else did. It was sort of the the men controlled everything. Her mother had passed away. She had really no one to turn to. And as I will get into in, in the next phase of this case, because this thing's about three or four phases, you'll see that this whole theme about Lori will be reinforced. So as you well know, the federal process goes slow, but we're going to, because of uh, various uh, machinations by Bill's attorney, we're going to have almost a full-blown trial for his sentencing hearing, which was scheduled to, to occur on February 6th, 2004. So we're preparing for this um, while working on the, all the art facets of this case, but we're preparing for Bill's sentencing hearing because he's the first one that's going to be sentenced. And we get a call from Lori Erpenbeck's attorney very capable defense attorney, but he calls us and he stated that 
Lori's been contacted by her father. And her father wants to talk to her about this sentencing hearing because they know that Lori has been talked to by the, the U.S. Attorney's Office. And they essentially, I think they, he wanted to know what she was going to say. So she doesn't really want to have anything to do with him. Calls her attorney. You know, we all sit down and it was quickly agreed upon that we're going to wire Lori up. And so we did wire her up um, for a meeting with her father. And her father just more or less stated, you know, you, Bill, and I ought to get together. So when that went down, she went along with the meeting and we're, we're uh, playing along. And it, she met with her father. They drove down to the hotel in northern Kentucky, in Covington, Kentucky, where Bill was staying in a few days prior to the sentencing hearing. We were set up uh, at a White Castle next door to the hotel, and uh, Bill Erpenbeck picked up Lori and her father, Tony, and proceeded to drive to the top of the garage uh, of this building. Jerry, as you know, you never know how these things are going to go down with a wire. We had perfect reception. That was nice of them to go to the very top so you can have nice, clear reception. Yes, it was super. But I, I be honest with you, I don't think we could have written a script that was more incriminating. That's when the abuse of Lori is essentially confirmed. Um, they want her to take the fall for the whole thing. That it was her idea that Bill was trying to right the ship and, and that, you know, he was the one trying to save the day and she was the one that was moving these funds around and uh, essentially trying to keep the company afloat by this uh, fraud. And she just didn't really want to have anything to do with that. And, and they said, well, you know, Lori, Bill has two kids, you know, he, he's a widower, you know, you, you're the only one that's not married. You can afford to go to jail. No one else can. And, you know, it was essentially that theme just overwhelming that, hey, you have to take the fall for this. And then Bill states that his attorney was very good friends uh, with the judge and that they dined probably every other month or something like that. But and it was true. They, they were before uh, Susan DeLott, who was the judge, became a judge. She was in a law firm with Glenn Whitaker. Whether what Bill was saying was true or not, who knows, but he was mentioning it. And he just said everything was going to be greased. She'd only, you know, he'd get off with a lighter sentence. And therefore, she would also just get a much lighter sentence. It would be almost no effect that they were, you know, gunning after him. So, you know, we have to do this for the family. It was unbelievable. Uh, the, the tape, we listened to it, everything, everybody dispersed. And then they were going to meet again the next night because that was the night right before that would have been February 5th. The, the hearing was to be on February 6th. So we had another meeting. Essentially, the same area uh, of uh, that hotel was behind another hotel. The reception wasn't as good, but pouring rain out. But we still had, it confirmed everything that was in the previous conversation. And was this conversation for Lori to tell them her decision? Yes. And she said, you know, more or less, stated that she would go along with it. But we also had authorization um, from the U.S. Attorney's Office to arrest uh, Bill and Tony at that time, which we did. They came back to the courtyard, uh, Marriott, 
and rolled in. We got Lori, uh, uh, went to one direction, and we arrest, arrested Bill and Tony. And just as an aside, Tony was always in the periphery of the major fraud because uh, he actually had a signature loan from a bank that he, he obtained, and he put the money you know, towards these overdraft loans at People's uh, Bank. And oddly enough, it was another People's Bank over in Ohio that gave him the loan. We didn't have enough to charge him on it, believe it or not, because it, because of lack of diligence by the bank. They, a signature loan wasn't secured at all. It's just the paperwork was, I mean, I think I had more paperwork at a, a car loan than I've obtained than there was for this particular loan for a million dollars. So he was never charged, but then all of a sudden, Tony is now in the fold. He's been arrested with his son, and they were charged with obstruction. So we go to court the next day, and, and they canceled the, the sentencing hearing at 9, and uh, we had the complaint signed uh, by the judge, Delat. She was uh, rather surprised at some of the facts that were contained in the affidavit. Then she sets uh, the arraignment for 1 p.m. the next day. Come into the courtroom. There's now two chairs behind the bench, and Judge Delat stated that because of uh, impending back surgery and the complications with this case, she's going to turn the trial over to Judge Spiegel because it's just this thing. She stated that you know obviously this is going to go a lot longer than we all anticipated. Did she also feel she needed to recuse herself because? In a sense, she was part of the case because of his claims. That no. Okay. And Jerry, you'd be surprised that she should have recused herself because, number one, I, I think because of Mr. Whitaker's involvement, but also her husband, Stan Chesley, very prominent attorney, he was doing a class action suit on behalf of the homeowners over in Kentucky. And yet she stayed on, uh, it wasn't in federal court in Kentucky, but it was in uh, a county court, but she stayed on. Nonetheless, and but now she finally had decided to back away from uh, the proceedings, and uh, which was probably a good decision. They get charged with obstruction, so we start getting we start going into the sentencing phase uh, for these gentlemen. Bill and Tony decided to plead guilty to obstruction and witness tampering, and that's an and that's in addition to Bill having already pleaded guilty for the fraud. The bank fraud. So as you know, there was going to be any more uh, talk about his uh, sentence, uh, but it was interesting in April, he pled, uh, he was sentenced on April the 1st and the judge Spiegel, um, very, very strict judge on white collar cases. He allowed every victim that wanted to speak to come in and speak. So we had, I think, about 90 people signed up to speak that day, but not all of them said anything. But we're in going through the phases of these folks giving their statements, and several of them are very heart-wrenching, to tell you the truth. One elderly gentleman comes uh, into the courtroom late while these statements are being given, and he made a point of stating he wanted to say something to one of the clerks there, and so he was the last one to come up. And I don't remember his name, but he he got up there and stated to Judge Spiegel, Judge Spiegel, a World War II veteran, uh, Air Force pilot. This gentleman, I don't was not aware of that, I'm sure, but he stated that he was a World War II veteran and that 
when they sold their big home and bought a condominium, they thought they were, you know, going to have a, a very nice life of traveling, enjoying themselves. Uh, he and his wife, he said, but yeah, since this whole thing broke over this two-year period, his health had declined precipitously. His wife was not doing well. They still were trying to figure out how they were going to get this uh, lien off of their house. He said, you know, I, I served in World War II, Judge, and I really thought that we would take care of our veterans. As soon as he started speaking, Judge Spiegel sort of moved up in his chair a little bit, and you could hear a pin drop in that place. Judge Spiegel thanked him for coming in, and he said, but more importantly, I want to thank you for your service. He says, justice will be served. And if you could have seen Bill Orpenbeck's face when he made that statement, you, you knew it was all over. These are called victim impact statements. And it sounds like this particular veteran's statement really did have an impact on that judge. It did. Judge Spiegel stated, number one, because there was a lot of media there and he wanted the doors locked to the courtroom and didn't want anybody to leave till after this whole thing was done. He got up there and he gave a pretty long-winded statement to Bill Erpenbeck, but he sentenced him to 30 years in jail. Which is unbelievably significant for yeah. <laughs> what's called a crime sentencing. Yeah, he was, uh, he was looking at probably between 12 and 15, we had calculated prior to that. Um, oh, so you were, you were surprised too. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, well, you know that the obstruction usually doubles things. I mean, sometimes it does. It has, it has an effect. If it was like a, a something, if someone was looking at maybe five years, it might get doubled, maybe, let's say eight, you know, be somewhere in that 30 to 50% range, um, just in my humble experience. So it, it was quite an impact on Bill. and They led him away. And shortly, I guess within a few months after that, it was in July, Michelle Marksbury was sentenced to two years and five years of supervised release. And, um, had mixed feelings about Lori's sentence. Uh, Lori had taken money out of the company, repaid it, and as well as the tax penalties along with it. The other case agent and myself, I I think we wouldn't have been too upset if she just, you know, received probation. But she was sentenced to a year and a day and five months of supervised release. Um, But you, you think about what she did, essentially had to do and deal with her family. You know, it was just a, a tremendous effort on her part. Going just in a it's sort of the chronological order here, I'm going to be talking about Bill's sentence was appealed, which we'll get into. But as we went along here, Tony Erpenbeck in July as well was sentenced to 70 months for his obstruction. And if you remember, he had nothing to do with, well, wasn't charged at all in the, in the major fraud. And that's the father. Yes. So Bill is taken away, and then but Tony, Tony is put in a local facility. Prior to his sentencing, I should say, I I should back up a little bit, he was making some threats while he was down in the county jail that he was very angry with the prosecutor and with the judge. We actually attempted to tape him, uh, have another prisoner tape him about it because he was just making some uh, very threatening statements. We were not successful with the taping, but we did advise the judge about it. And the judge said, you know, he don't have anything. He just dismissed the threat. So, um, what kind of threats were they? Well, he, he just wanted them to be harmed. Both the judge and uh, Kathy Brinkman, the prosecutor. 
So he's sentenced and for obstruction and placed down in Lexington, Kentucky, which is probably about an hour and a half south of uh, Cincinnati. He started making more threats. This time, uh, not only threatening to kill the judge and kill Kathy Brinkman, the prosecutor, but making very, very graphic threats about how this was to be done to both of them. And then he also wanted to kidnap my children. Now, you're going to have to explain that. That that Well, he Tony wasn't too happy with me. I, you know, uh, we went down there trying, as I said, he was trying to mitigate his sentence. And we went down to the jail there before, I guess it was in March of 2004. And, you know, we asked him, what do you have to say? And he was still putting it all on Lori. <laughs> and just trying to be diplomatic with his attorney. I said, you know, you're wasting our time. We drove an hour down here to talk to him. And he's saying all this stuff. I said, we're leaving. He said, oh, you know, wait a minute. Let me talk to him. So we come back in and, all right, what do you have to say? And same thing. So we, Kevin Gormley, the, the co-case agent, and myself, we just got up and we left. And I said, yeah, the heck with this guy. December of 2004, Tony is making these threats. So we get word of it from a, another fraud it's, it was another fraud story. It was from Illinois, but this particular facility that they were in was a medical facility and woman's uh, prison down in Lexington. And it was a transition point for a number of people, drug dealers and a few other people that are in there. So this fellow, his last name was Collins. He comes up and tells someone within the prison system that Urban Beck is making these threats. And um, so we got a hold of uh, Dave Potts down in our Lexington office. And Dave, we wired up uh, Mr. Collins. And uh, we taped Tony on probably at least two occasions in, in making these graphic threats against uh, Judge Spiegel and, and Kathy Brinkman and my children. Was he actually trying to solicit someone to do these things? He was talking, um, you know, pretty specifically and said he was going to move some money around. And he did move a minor amount of money around that what he had available to him down there and said more was to come. And I mean, he was, uh, the tapes were pretty extensive, Jerry. And so, you know, we took, all three of us were advised of it and we took precautions until the the whole thing was mitigated. How old were your children at the time? They were um, seven and 11. Oh, wow. I had get married a little late in life, so my children were pretty young. But um, Tony was, as a result of that conduct, um, you know, he was taken out of there. He was placed in Oklahoma. So we were all, you know, essentially out of harm's way. And um, he was indicted of, in April 2005. Once this becomes known to the public that these threats have been made, you know, to the judge, to the prosecutor, and to your children, are you concerned that your children will learn about these threats? Yes. Uh, well, the threats, we uh, did not let anybody know until the day after Tony was indicted. I'm talking about family, friends. Of course, we contacted the schools uh, where the children went to school, as well as we contacted our local police department. And we coordinated our protection effort for them with those essentially three entities, two schools and the police department. But once 
it became public, we knew that obviously it was front page news that they would be questioned by their friends and we'd be questioned by our friends. And it was just, you know, I had to let them know that there are mean people out there and and these types of things happen. And uh, we did everything we could to protect you. And, um, and at this point, I said, you know, I have forgiven this man and you should forgive him too, because justice will be served. And I guess the threat was definitely something that was very concerning because you knew that he was voicing these opinions to one person, but you had really no idea if he was making these threats or trying to solicit you know, someone to carry them out elsewhere. That's correct, because we knew there were some dangerous characters in addition to our informant on this matter that were also incarcerated in the same facility. He was stayed in that facility for probably about a month after we found out about the initial threats because we had to essentially catch him in the act. So we had conversations taped, uh, monitored his his uh, money, and uh, you know were able to make the case. And once that was done, he was moved immediately from Lexington, Kentucky, to Oklahoma. And then on to California, because they just didn't want him there at all. Just prior to his indictment, I shouldn't jump around, but uh, John Finnan and Mark Many pled guilty in 2005 uh, to bank fraud and, and theft by a bank officer. They were sentenced to, I believe John received 68 months and uh, Many received about 60 months um, at that time. Well, let me ask you a question, because when you have a fraud, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're deceiving someone in order to get something of value. What did the bankers get out of being involved in the scheme? Well, John started the bank. He founded it. And Mark, you know, they wanted to keep it. It was going to go down. Had they let him essentially just let him, told him to leave the bank, they would have taken a, probably a big loss, but they would have been, you know, unable to move on. But they didn't. They perpetrated this whole thing. And what they did receive was, as I stated earlier, they were had that business partnership with Bill, with those model homes that uh, netted them initially a good sum of money. Nothing spectacular, but it, it was a good sum of money. But then when the whole thing blew up, Obviously, the homes were no longer being leased by the Erpenbeck company. They had to be sold, and they were sold at a heavy discount. So Mark and, and John took a, a loss. But, um, but their, their activities and um, their benefit, I think, it was minimal, but their actions were spoke for themselves, you know, manipulating bank records, converting overdrafts into loans. It was just a number of violations that they could have been charged with bank fraud, and theft by a bank officer. They received, as I said, fairly significant sentences. They moved on. You know, I have to say, after that was all over with, it was one of the few times that a subject, both of them, came up and shook my hand when it was all over with. I mean, they knew that we were just doing our job. They blamed Bill because, essentially, he, through his sales pitch and, and just his personality, he sold them, you know, a bill of goods. And um, I mean, you, you speak about who benefited from some of these things. I, I mentioned Michelle Marksbury, who was a person who's the closing coordinator. I was trying to figure out what was she gaining from this. Looked at her salary was, you know, 
similar to others of the same position in other construction companies. And we couldn't figure it out. We just thought she was essentially enamored by Bill and you know the company that she just, you know, this is the way we have to do business in order to keep our jobs. But was she enriched by the scheme? No. So I, it, some of this stuff, it just um, doesn't make a lot of sense why you would do something like this. But uh, Well, and, and many of the fraud cases, I'm sure you'll agree with this, the perpetrators are con men who are just so charming. Do you think that she just was overcome by Bill's charm? I think she was overcome by Bill's charm. Uh, you know, I, I, it was really just, it was so sad because she had a young child, infant. We went in there and talked to her. And if she would have just told the truth, I think things would have been maybe gone a little differently for her. But she was adamant about it. And, you know, you, know, you seal your fate. Um, it, it was really another sad situation there. And, and uh, the other member of the fellow named Tom Jordan, uh, he was the financial controller of that company. He was the gentleman who died of a heart attack. We had already set up an interview to talk to him and his attorney. And he had a massive heart attack in his uh, condominium and, and died uh, prior to our interviews. Other brothers that are in the company, uh, Gary and Jeff, I don't know how they really didn't know about some of this stuff, but I don't think they knew the particulars. They were not charged in this thing. There was speculation in the paper that every, all these people were going to be charged. Well, it you know, ended up being about 10 when it was all over with, but uh, nowhere near where the uh, media had speculated. We were supposed to have this trial for Tony, and it kept being postponed because he was, I'll say it, uh, I think he was feigning illness, that he was weak and everything else, and it went on and on, and then they found out he was competent and healthy enough to you know, stand trial. And so he stood trial for this, these threats in December 2005. He was convicted, and he was sentenced to another 20 years in jail. Wow. So this is somebody who wasn't even involved in the original scheme. Or, no. wasn't, or wasn't even charged in the original scheme, has no. now been charged and convicted of two counts having to do with the aftermath of the scheme. Yes, essentially with a life sentence, uh, although I, I think he's slated to get out here in a few years. He's in his 80s now. The other thing that happened in 2005 was, um, was essentially 2006, it was just after this, is that Bill was to be resentenced. His attorney, they were making all of this uh, comparing sentences, his sentence to everybody else's sentence. And it was during the Tyco and WorldCom collapse. I remember his uh, lawyer stating that Ebers of WorldCom and, and Kozlowski of Tyco, I think they only received 20 years. And here my client got 30. A different judge was hearing the uh, sentencing case. You were telling us that that was mainly because of the obstruction of justice charge. Right. Of course, he's not going to get into that. The judge came back and essentially looked at everything and reduced one phase of it, but kept the other phase up. It was reduced to 25 years. And the judge, when she made the statement about, she said, I don't think I've ever had a case in my court that has affected so many people in this community as this case. Most of the numbers being tossed around were 30 million here and 30 million there. We charged the bankers because they sold $30 million worth of loans to these participating banks. And then Bill was, was essentially his thing was all the homes that they sold. Uh, that 
came up to right around 30 million as well. But the impact on the community, it was well over 100 million. Probably about a year ago, some young man uh, had this tremendous automobile accident. And he was, uh, they said he was using drugs. He said, you know, he's never been the same since his construction firm went out of business because of the urban bank fraud. It was unbelievable. Believe it or not, there is another phase. It, this is the case that never went away. I had two nicknames for this case. It was the Lawyer Enrichment Act of 2004 because there was a chart in the newspaper. There were 75 attorneys involved in this thing at one time or another, and that was just at the beginning. And so it was probably closer to 100 attorneys involved with it over a period of time. But the other nickname for this case it was the case that would never end. You're saying it doesn't end. You know, what else can happen? Well, I retired. That was a good thing about it. I, I, I retired in, at the right at the end of 2008, but I was, went to work as a contractor in the Cincinnati office of the FBI. And uh, I talking to Kevin Gormley, the, the other the co-case agent on this Erpenbeck case, he comes up to me and says, you aren't going to believe this. It was about August of 2009. He said, I, I got a, a call that Bill has something to say. It's about money. There was all this talk about he put money over uh, off, offshore, he went here, he went there with this money. Uh, it was a big safe in his house. Uh, there was nothing in there. We use, utilized all the normal sources to find money offshore. We didn't find anything. And that was in, you know, in conjunction also with FDIC and our sources over at the Treasury Department. Kevin flies down to FCI Coleman, which is in central Florida, where Erpenbeck is in prison. And he talks to him and he said, you know, there's some money buried out behind my house at this golf course, Summit Hills. It's between um, a T and a green, but I don't know exactly what it is. But a guy named Steve Skidmore, who we had talked to, I don't know how many people we talked to that lived in his neighborhood or ran around with Bill, asking them about, do you know of any assets being diverted here or there because, you know, this whole thing was going through the forfeiture phase, and, you know, all these, the, the house was being sold and all this. And everybody to a person, oh, no, you don't really don't know anything. And this Skidmore, I think he lived right next door to him and talked to him twice. No, doesn't know a thing. So Bill states, well, you know, here's the code word to have my brother Jeff go talk to Steve Skidmore and he'll let him know what's going on, what, where the money is. You give him the code word and that Bill needs the money and he's going to tell you where the money's located. So Jeff agrees to wear a wire. We've used that technique quite a bit in this case <laughs> and goes in there and talks to Mr. Skidmore and gives him the phrase and he said, oh yeah, the, the money is buried. It's located between the third T and sixth green buried it almost eight years ago. Do so, you have any idea how much money we're talking about? Yeah, the, it was uh, $250,000. Skidmore is interviewed by our agents, denies knowing anything. Then he hears the tape. And of course, he acknowledges what happened here. And he said, yeah, the money is located between the third T and the sixth green. So they went out there and it was all overgrown, tree roots and everything else. They start digging. Voila, they, they hit something. And you, you wouldn't believe what he buried it in. It was a cooler that was given out during an Erpenbeck golf tournament in the shape of a golf bag. And it was $250,000 in strapped cash that was just put in there. No, not in a plastic bag or anything, just 
put in there. So you can imagine that money has deteriorated quite a bit. We brought the money back to the office and called Quantico in a lab and the lab said, freeze that, put it in the freezer and have someone bring it to us. So we froze it, put it in dry ice and brought it to Quantico. And they were able to work with the treasury department as long as there was 51% of that bill. All of them were at least 51%. The treasury department would give you credit for it. So it was a little over $250,000, which was forfeited, but then ended up going, I think, to someone as part of one of the, the bankruptcy case or whatever. But it went to the right hands, as you can well imagine. But Skidmore obviously was arrested, and he pled guilty and was sentenced to 16 months in jail and fined $30,000. I thought, you know, geez, that's pretty stiff for doing what he did there. The reason why he was sentenced to such a really sort of hefty term here is because the judge gave him a break. Skidmore had mentioned that his son was to graduate, a few things he had to tie up with family affairs, and could he just be, have this thing postponed? And it was postponed a few times. But then he made the mistake of submitting someone else's urine for his drug test, and that angered the judge. So therefore, he got as much as he could give him, which was the 16 months and a $30,000 fine. And so I ask you this question again. He's involved you know, in, in this, you know, hiding of the money, then he lies to the FBI. But what did he get from he, the thing? He got absolutely nothing. You know, he was a friend of Bill's and he lied for him. That's what he did. You, you just wonder what people are thinking when they do something like that. We got to go back, as I sort of deferred you earlier, is that how could this all happen? Well, Urban Beck Company was a very, very poorly run company. He lived very, very large, and everybody thought he was absolutely loaded, but they ran through money an annual basis. I think it was for three years, they took all their contractors out on a cruise for four days, and they paid for them to spend a night in Miami. They go on a cruise and then paid for another night in Miami, and then also covered their airfare. He, he just would really put the hook into these folks to be loyal to them. Our FBI office, back when this case was going on, was actually located. We had one little section of this building that essentially was occupied by the biggest construction company in northern Kentucky, uh, Fisher Homes. And uh, Henry Fisher ran into myself and, and the supervisor of the office one day out in the hallway, and he said, you know, this is after this whole thing broke. You know, he said, I never understood how all this, uh, how they made money. He said they would pay more for their land, pay their labor more, and sell their houses for less. He said it just didn't add up. And I looked at, I don't know how many closing statements, you know how there's points and fees and everything else, where well, they actually would pay some of the loan origination points for people that purchased their homes. So they were really in a uh, very thin, thin margin of profit leading up to 2001. Th things were slow. They had done it before from what we heard, this, this type of scheme on a much smaller scale. And then they repaid those loans. They just essentially, you know, borrowed the money, so to speak, sort of like a teller taking the money out of the tray at the bank and pay it back at the end of the week type thing. Well, things were a little bit slow near the end of the decade in the 90s, and then we're starting to come back. And then, as you know, what happened to the economy after 2001, 911 happens, things just go to a standstill there for a while. And that was essentially what put the knife in that company. 
but they had benefited by utilizing very friendly title insurance companies that didn't do the right thing. They didn't do what they were supposed to do in cutting checks, making sure those checks were cashed and making sure liens were clear. That, that's the duty of an insurance company. And people think that they buy title insurance and they're protecting themselves. Well, that title insurance that they buy nine times out of 10 is protecting the institution that's lending them the money. It doesn't protect them. But the long and short of it on this thing is that all the homeowners were made whole by the banks. So they took, absorbed the loss. A lot of these title companies were sued and you know, their insurance companies paid a fortune. And then, of course, they finally changed their practices in which checks are made payable to you. That's, that's the only way you're leaving with this check. And, you know, they were doing things the right way, finally. Essentially, title insurance is a very profitable line of work. And, um, you know, they just want to generate as much business as they, they could. And, you know, they sort of overlooked the details and it cost a lot of people a lot of money. Can we then assume that the, the senior citizen veteran who had this extra construction lien on his home that the bank did come in and pay off that loan and all the other loans and liens that were on the buyer's homes. That's correct. That's correct. And well, they should. The banks weren't totally innocent here either. When you go to a closing, the title agent will be, in order to prepare the paperwork, they will call up the construction lender and they'll say, hey, what's the payoff on this loan? And they give them a figure. And that's usually the same figure that, you know, is how the check is uh, generated for the closing. So the bank would tell them the payoff number, but the right hand didn't know what the left hand's doing. One department saying, hey, that's the payoff, but no one looked for the payment at the other end. It was pretty sloppy procedures, if you ask me. But, you know, you're dealing with bigger banks and sometimes they're, I guess those are different departments, but Somehow or another, you would think that if you have a construction loan and it isn't gone, hasn't gone down at all over a period of time, you wonder, are they selling anything here? Because construction loans, you put out those monies in, in draws and to the builder. You know, when the development is done, you know, essentially that's, there's no more draws. It's supposed to be paid back. <laughs> one of the better stories on Erpenbeck was this one development. It was called Steeplechase in which they were putting in the draw for the the uh, sewage system for this particular development. So they sent an inspector out. I, I think a lot of these inspectors just signed off on things, but this particular inspector went out there and saw, you know, the sewers and everything else. And so he goes over there, just pops open the top of the sewer and there's nothing under it, but dirt. There's not connected to anything. <laughs> so what they did was just drop all the sewer caps and uh, the uh, concrete that goes along with it on the surface. They hadn't dug anything. That was so they could get a draw on that yeah. having been completed <laughs> when no work had actually been done. Yeah. So the, obviously the draw was not made on that particular uh, request. Tony's getting out in um, 2021, I think. And Bill is getting out in uh, 2025. Don't think I'll ever see either one of them again, and I'm sure they don't want to see me. So it sounds like shortly after this case, uh, you know, was adjudicated that you, you retired. And, and then you mentioned that you went back to work for the FBI as a contractor. What was that about? I was a contract forfeiture investigator. It was the housing crisis and financial crisis of 2007 and eight. A lot of it was mortgage fraud. And so they, they hired a group of retired agents uh, at the end of 2008 into 2009. 
in various hotspots. We were a hotspot here to uh, try to assist in working those cases, but uh, obviously with an eye on forfeiture. I did that for about five years. At the uh, end of every interview, I like to give my guests the opportunity to have the last word. You could talk about, uh, you know, your career and why you joined the FBI, or you can talk about, you know, the, the state of the FBI today. I'll leave that up to you. What would you like to say? I was very blessed, Jerry, to be an FBI employee, either as a support person, agent, or a contractor for almost 39 years. You share my feelings as well, but I, I just, I don't think we could have had a better career. It was a lot of fun. I miss it. I consider myself blessed. I think it's a great institution, despite what we're going through right now. I, I think it's sort of a blip on the radar. I just hope we get it squared away, and I'm confident with our director, we'll get it done. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Tim Tracy. You'll find links to newspaper articles about this case. And there's also a link to the Homewrecker American Greed episode. I hope you share this episode with your friends, family, and associates. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you today, but I do have a true crime podcast that I want to tell you about. Pretend Radio, hosted by my friend Javier. Season three is a special series about the World of Faith Fellowship Church based in Spindale, North Carolina. Javier has been able to do what no one else has been able to do, speak directly to the leaders of the religious sect, access that all other journalists have been denied. It is a fascinating look at a church that some say is a cult. So please check out the true crime podcast, Pretend Radio. And if you're looking for crime fiction, don't forget to check out my books, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers, part of my Philadelphia FBI Corruption Squad series, available as ebooks, paperbacks, and audiobook at Amazon.com. Thank you for your support. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.